So we said, brothers and sisters, that the, the word disciple means to learn, to be a learner. And if we have learned, then we become the learned. So discipleship is about learning. And in Simon Peter, we have a wonderful example of a man who was not too proud to learn, even in his older years. So this idea of learning to follow Jesus is not something that, you know, you do a course, uh, you get a certificate, and that, now you, you can do it. It's something which is a lesson throughout life, don't you think? But Simon Peter also had to become a leader, not just a learner. He had to allow others to follow him. He had to set an example. He had to give direction and guidance uh, for people to follow. So the difference between um, the two subjects, really, following is about being a sheep. In those times in Israel, if you go to Israel today, uh, or you go to the Middle East today, and you do get to see uh, a shepherd boy with his sheep, uh, you'll see it, it's true, the sheep follow the boy. They, they do. I've seen that. They follow him. So not like in Wales uh, and the West Country, where the dogs uh, circle the sheep and snap at their heels and drive them forward. In the Middle East, the voice of the shepherd is recognized by the sheep and they follow him or her. Right? So, so being a follow me, Jesus is saying, I've got a flock. I'm the shepherd. You're the sheep. You follow me. And that really is, is something that Peter tells us a lot about. Being a shepherd is a different thing, isn't it? Being a leader, looking after the sheep uh, is, is a different thing. And Peter developed that responsibility. Uh, and we can see that in the Acts of the Apostles. But let's look at what Peter uh, learned and the way in which Matthew's Gospel record portrays that. So I'm going to go very rapidly through this because it was the earlier subject. So Matthew chapter 14 to 19, just look at this. And you know the incident so well, I don't really need to read the passages and describe them, but just notice, uh, or ask yourself, see if you agree, what are the lessons we're supposed to take? So in chapter 14, uh, they're in the ship and there's a storm and, and uh, they're tossed with the waves. Verse 24 says the wind was contrary and they see the Lord Jesus walking on the water. And Peter uh, realizes it is Jesus and he says, Lord, bid me come. And Peter gets out of the boat. And it's a most amazing thing. You think this is a crazy thing to do, to get out of a boat in a storm. And uh, Peter wanted to do that. And the first thing, which is the obvious thing, is Peter's desire to be with the Lord Jesus Christ was greater than anything else in his environment, wasn't it? You know, what the others didn't get out of the boat. You think, what, what was Peter thinking? Now, I wonder, was he right to get out of the boat? Should he have stayed in the boat? Because, you know, when in the other incident, we say, stay in the boat. In Acts chapter 27, we say, stay in the boat. That's the lesson. <laughs> Don't get out of the boat. You know, you're safe in the boat. The ecclesial boat is, is the ark. That's where you're going to be safe. But in this case, Peter gets out of the boat and the Lord doesn't rebuke him at all. He says, come. And uh, I just would love to ask him what it felt like, you know, to put your foot on water and, and you're walking as on ice. <laughs> uh, I don't think he thought about that too much because once he saw the waves, of course, he started to sink. And the lesson 
I think the, the, the most obvious lesson is that unless we look at Jesus, unless we focus on the Lord, then the storms of life are going to drown us. And, you know, thinking back to uh, those examples I, uh, I mentioned earlier on of our brothers and sisters from other countries who come under different routes and for different circumstances, but because they want to know more about the Lord Jesus Christ, the storms that they are suffering, you know, are, are immense. And, you know, I think, what can we say? But it's their desire to know Jesus. The Lord Jesus died to understand him, to the attraction. You speak, speak to our brothers and sisters and you say to them, well, what was it a few years ago now in, in Germany? What was it? And you know what the answer was? Jesus. It sounds obvious now. It was, it was the character of the Lord. That was what was so attractive. And that's where they start. Some says, would you want to read the Bible? Can I? Yeah, have a look. And that has drawn them. The character of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, we, we can't underestimate that. That's why we need to absorb, you know, and, and immerse ourselves in the scriptures. Not just as a matter of rote reading, but, but immerse ourselves in the company of the Lord. Because he is immensely attractive. And, and that means that when we, are, we feel that strength, then we realize that's the most important thing. And where is he? That's where we want to be. So in every discussion and every debate and in every controversy, the question is, brothers and sisters, in every family situation, in every ecclesial situation, where is the Lord? What path is he taking? And that's what we're trying to find out. Not what I think, what you think. But I don't think it's important. Well, I think it's very Does the Lord think it's important? As he has instructed his apostles to teach us, sometimes people want to make a distinction between, say, the Gospels and the Epistles, or the Epistles are just, oh, that's Paul, isn't it, you know? Where did Paul come from? The Lord Jesus chose him, filled him up, with the Spirit, and sent him to us to teach us how to be disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. So no good saying, oh, that's just the Apostle Paul. We can't possibly say that, can we? He's the man that Jesus chose. Right? Every word of God is pure. So what does the Lord want us to do? Well, how are we going to know? Unless you've got a special revelation, tell me how to get it. But how do you know the word of God? So exposition and careful study of God's word is how we learn. I think that's so obvious. It's too obvious to say, isn't it? So when we get these situations, I've even opened the Bible. To, to get that instruction. Are we drifting away from the source of knowledge to be a disciple? But of course, we're under the pressure of a Western society. We in the West, our Middle Eastern brothers and sisters, not yet under that pressure. They're under a different sort of pressure, but we in the West are under a postmodern pressure to extol individualism and rely upon feelings 
this is what I feel and rely upon that feeling rather than reason, which is rejected as modernism. This is postmodernism. We can't trust reason. We're not talking about human reason. We're talking about God and the Lord Jesus Christ's reasoning. That's what we're talking about, not human philosophy and human psychology. No, I don't trust it either. The word of God, if they speak not according to this word, it's because there's no light in them. It says, Isaiah chapter 8, seal the law amongst my disciples. Right? So we have to go back to scripture. He said, oh, we've been pharisaical. No, it's not been pharisaical. Do you think the Pharisees studied scripture? No, they did not. What is chapter 15 all about? Look at chapter 15 of Matthew. Why do thy disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? That's what they were studying. They would study the actual words of God. They, would they were studying the human philosophizing on that word and, and the extrapolations in exquisite detail about how much of an arm you need to wash in order to have washed your hands when you come back from the market. <coughs> They had missed the spirit. And why? Verse 7 of Matthew 15. Ye hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain they do worship me. Strong words, eh? The Lord saying them. Strong words, quoting Isaiah. In vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. So we would verge away from anybody says oh this is what human philosophers are saying this is what what uh, you know the best uh, scientists are saying we don't trust that but to trust our feelings is to go right against scripture for the heart is deceitful above all things who can know it so to the scriptures they speak not according to this word and that's where we need to learn from and so in this chapter, which is about tradition versus truth, and the Lord offers a parable, they be blind leaders of the blind and so on. Peter says in verse 15, declare unto us this parable. And the Lord says unto him, are ye yet without understanding? Do you not yet understand? You see, there's an expectation on us that we will grow in understanding. The Lord is saying, Peter, don't disappoint me. <laughs> you know, how long have you been coming with me now? And how many parables have I explained to you? And you can't, and haven't you got it yet about what defiles a person? It's the heart. It's the heart. That's the point. So Peter takes that rebuke of the chin. He doesn't get offended he doesn't go away so i've stayed around here to be insulted <laughs> he's wonderful isn't he he's just such a lovely character you can see him going oh yeah of course i <laughs> sorry I, I got it now <laughs> and then you see in chapter 16 when the lord says well who do you say i am from chapter 11 to chapter 16 of matthew we've come to the point of the lord's ministry where there's a lot of stock taking in chapter 11, even John Baptist in prison sends a message, are you the one? I think that's a genuine question. I don't think that's for his disciples' sake. I think John the Baptist wanted to know if Jesus was the one. Why? Because he's still in prison. 
And all the prophecies of Isaiah said, what's the Messiah going to do? He's going to release the prisoners. <laughs> and there he is in prison. Well, aren't you the one? And people said, well, perhaps he's John the Baptist. Perhaps he's one of the prophets. Perhaps he's Jeremiah. Perhaps he's Elijah. Who do you say that I am? And this is where Simon Peter makes this wonderful declaration. Yeah. Thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And the Lord says to him something very interesting. He says unto him, flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my father which is in heaven. What does that mean? Flesh and blood has not revealed it unto thee, but my father which is in heaven. And what the Lord is referring us back to is chapter 11 of Matthew, where the Lord says in verse 25, at that time Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and hast revealed them unto babes. Right? Revealed them unto babes. For flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Right? And how did that happen? Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight, all things are delivered unto me of my Father. No man knoweth the Son but the Father, neither know any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. Peter had learned from heaven by listening and watching the Lord Jesus Christ. The works of the Father done by the Son, the words of the Father spoken by the Son, had revealed to Peter that this was indeed the Christ, the Son of the living God. For us, it's the word of God. It's the same, isn't it? Because those words are written down for us. So he makes this wonderful declaration based now on a true understanding. And the Lord says, thou art Peter upon this rock. And the rock, I believe, is the rock of Peter's faith, not Peter himself. Right? It's a difference, isn't it? We don't put our faith in a man other than the Lord Jesus Christ. But then what a lesson he gives us, because only a few minutes later in the text anyway, the Lord is telling them in verse 21 that he has to go to Jerusalem and be killed. And verse 22, Peter takes him aside. I don't know how old Peter was. He might have been a bit older. He might have had a, a paternal uh, regard for the Lord. You know, now, now Master, you know, just come aside. Now, let's, don't talk like this. Let's... You know, have pity on yourself. You know, don't, don't, don't be defeated now. You know, going so well, just because quite a few people are turning away, just because Herod's after you, just because the authorities are sending up people from Jerusalem to catch you up. You know, don't let that get you too much. And it was inappropriate, it was inappropriate to teach the Lord. It's always inappropriate to teach the Lord, isn't it? And the Lord says in verse 23, in the most uh, robust terms, get thee behind me, Satan. Huh? For thou savest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, if any man will come after me, you see, get thee behind me in the right position to come after me. Right? He's in the, at this moment in time, he's standing in front of the Lord, instructing Jesus as to what Jesus should be saying and not saying. Sometimes we're like that. When we want to say what's right and wrong, 
when it's contradicting what the scriptures plainly teach. Because we say, oh, it's, you know, didn't mean it for us, or oh, it was just for them. Or, you know, you've got to, it wasn't fully inspired, you know, is his own weakness. No, brethren and sisters, it's the word of God. We put ourselves in the proper position behind the Lord, following him, not in front, telling him not to go there. That's, that's what Peter's teaching us. So Peter took it on the chin again because he's still with the Lord. Imagine being called Satan by Jesus. Imagine that. In chapter 17, the Lord says, Peter, you come up with the two others. Up the mountain. So, so the Lord actually is really bearing with Peter and he's going to show him the kingdom. He's going to give him the transfiguration. Peter's going to speak out a turn again. But the voice from heaven is going to say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him, Simeon. Hear him. Let's stop talking. Stop talking. Listen to him. That's what you've got to learn as a disciple. Listen to him. And that is going to be a lesson. So when we come to chapter, uh, chapter 17, we looked at the redemption, you know, and that's a beautiful point. In chapter 18, it's now about how you're going to become a shepherd in ecclesial life. How is Peter going to... Uh, you know, translate what he has learned now in to help the ecclesia. So chapter uh, 18 has the, the word ecclesia, verse 17, twice. There's only three times in the whole of the Gospels the word ecclesia is found, and two are there, and one is in chapter 16. So this section is about the ecclesial life. And the Lord is talking about how to deal with offences for those who, who were uh, unrepentant and eventually says if they won't listen take two or three and if they won't listen then take it to the cliche and if they still won't listen then you withdraw fellowship from them now the lord says that it's not me saying that it's not krista delphin saying that it's not robert robertson who worked that you know who laid down that law it's the lord jesus because there's a separation between light and darkness because there's no fellowship between light and darkness it's not helpful for that person who has gone astray to pretend that they haven't because their eternal life is at stake. So, you know, that's what he says. But there are other things which are passed over, ought to be passed over in chapter 18. And they're the needles and, and the minor things, the, the, the trivial things which can be so large in our minds, verse 21. Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Now, we don't know what the sin was. Probably there was something going on. Was it Andrew or somebody else? And, you know, you wonder whether Peter's uh, taken offense against Andrew. And you think to yourself, well, Andrew was the one who introduced him to the truth. <laughs> Wasn't that the greatest gift a brother could give another brother? Why would you be so mean? Why would you count offenses? Why would you say, Andrew, that's the seventh time? <laughs> and then that's the Lord saying, okay, count up to 490 then. <laughs> if you're counting, count the way God would count sins against you and me if God counted sins. And you could imagine Peter saying, oh, done it again. 
put my foot in it again. But what a lesson for us all to learn that without forgiveness, ecclesial life can't work. Without making allowances, without letting things pass, without not counting things, we're not going to make progress. Because we've all, I said, Paul Peters, and I wish I was. You know, we're all sheep that are drifting away or bouncing up against each other sometimes, you know, getting in the way of one another, competing for the grub, getting the best grass, you know, as sheep do. But as soon as the shepherd calls, you go, let's go. <laughs> it's what brings us back into the right direction. And so Peter learns and he makes mistakes. He learns, he makes mistakes. And then he makes three mistakes. Self-confidence is no substitute for faith. Though all men forsake thee, yet will not I. You know, and what did he say? You know, the Lord, it says in, uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, that the Lord met Peter separately. He was seed of Cephas, then of the twelve. And we, we wonder what that conversation was. I think it was there that Peter was able to say to the Lord, probably in floods of tears, I'm so sorry. I am so sorry. Because in chapter 21 of John, he doesn't say sorry. I think he said sorry already. He's poured his heart out to the Lord. And the Lord has said, I know I was listening. I know I saw, but Peter, you're the one that Isaiah spoke of, I was talking to. You were going to take that example wherever you go in the ecclesial world, and for thousands of years later, everyone will learn from what you did. And Peter took that message from ecclesia to ecclesia, and they said, they said, Peter, it was you. Yeah, that was me. And you can imagine the youth group. Where did you hide the sword? Yeah. And, you know, it wasn't a very good shot. You didn't cut his ear off. And Peter be saying to them, I want aiming for him. I was aiming for Judas. But remember what the Lord said. He that lives by the sword will die by the sword. I shouldn't have done it. I shouldn't have done it. I shouldn't have done it. And he take his story, you know, he's part of it. He's an actor in the, in the gospel record. He's an actor in the prophecy of Isaiah. What humility is required to do that? And here we have then, see, in chapter 21, that threefold affirmation before the other disciples. Do you love me more than these? And... The wonderful thing is, that we know the answer, Peter says, you know that I have affection for you. He can't use the word agape, can he? He can't use the word agape. Why? Because he knows that agape is what the Lord Jesus Christ showed when he laid down his life. And Peter knows that he never attained to that love. He thought he had it, but he had a strong affection for the Lord. It didn't, 
verge of self-sacrifice at that point? Did he love more than the other disciples? Because that's what he professed that he did. Second time, do you love me more than these? No, I have filio for you. And the third time he was really upset because the Lord says to him, have you got affection for me? And he was upset now. Don't deny me that. I know I can't say agape. I know I can't say agape. You know, agape is manifest in what I do, not my words. But you know, I've got deep affection for you. And you know, that it's on the basis of that deep affection that the Lord is going to entrust him with a life of service, a life of agape. And the three things he says, firstly, feed my lambs. Secondly, feed my sheep. Thirdly, feed my sheep. Now, the feed my sheep in verse 16 and 17 is not exactly the same. So it's feed my lambs, shepherd my sheep, and feed my sheep. So you've got three different stages. Feeding the lambs, teaching the little ones. Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 3. I'm teaching the word of God, the first principles. Secondly, shepherding the sheep, laying down rules for ecclesial life, setting up uh, you know, the seven to look after the widows and, and making sure the welfare system is working, making sure that we, we understand you know, that we need to give to our brothers and sisters who don't have what they need to survive. And then the third thing is to grow in understanding, to feed the sheep, the epistles, right? the word of God, strengthening us in our faith. That's the process that Simon Peter uh, was asked by the Lord Jesus Christ to, to, uh, to develop and become uh, disciple number one and apostle number one, the one who organized the first ecclesial gathering in Jerusalem. Well, the Acts of the Apostles goes on. There's just one last thing I wanted to say uh, in the time that has already run out, really. And that is, in Galatians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul describes how he had occasion to rebuke Peter. As Peter was being swayed by the Judaizers. Peter was being swayed by the Judaizers. He was such uh, so strongly Jewish in his, in his instincts that the teaching that he should not break bread or not eat, or not company the Gentiles, had been so ingrained into him that when this re-emerged in the in the, the ecclesia through the Judaizing influence, he was, you know, he was compromised. He was pulling back from reaching out to the Gentiles. And the apostle Paul has to rebuke him. Right? Now, that is something, isn't it? Now, Peter is the great apostle now. He's not just disciple number one. He's, he is the grand old man. Right? He's the one who walked on water. He was one who was there at the death of the Lord, at least in the condemnation of the Lord. He was the one who'd seen the empty tomb, hewn out of a rock, as Isaiah 51 said he was. Look into the rock from whence you're hewn. 
Now, how would he react to Simon Peter? I'm sorry, how would Simon Peter react to the Apostle Paul? Having been rebuked and put in his place and instructed by this young man. But what we find in Acts chapter 15 is that when he gets an opportunity now to give his judgment on the situation, Jew versus Gentile, he makes a wonderful, positive statement of the truth. And it's faith, not law, which saves. Beautiful. It's exactly what Paul would have wanted him to say, and he says it. But this is what so impresses me about it in 2 Peter chapter 3. When, he, when he's writing at the end of his life about the Apostle Paul, who had publicly rebuked him in front of a large number of people, this is what he can say. Verse 15 of 2 Peter 3. And account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you. Isn't that beautiful? The man who had reminded him of the truth. What a blessing Paul had been to him. His beloved brother. Now, there's the spirit, brothers and sisters, the true spirit, both of discipleship and shepherding. Because what an example he sets for us to follow as we together in these last days seek to follow our Lord Jesus Christ by faith. So we're going to look at uh, Simon Peter in the spirit of uh, Brother Steve's prayer and the hymns that we've sung together to look at the scriptures to find out what we are to learn from him. I'd like you to turn to John chapter 1, first of all, because this is the first time uh, that we meet the disciple in the ministry of the Lord Jesus in John chapter 1. And the Lord is being followed by some of John Baptist's disciples, and they want to learn, they want to sit at his feet, and they want to follow him. And verse 40 says that one of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first findeth his own brother Simon, and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah which is being interpreted the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus, and when Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah. Thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. So we're introduced to Simon Peter through his brother. As Simon Peter was introduced to the Lord Jesus Christ through his brother. So Andrew had found Jesus, or Jesus had found Andrew, and it's Andrew who says to Simon Peter, I have found the Messiah. So 
Simon Peter wasn't the first disciple, was he? Whoever the first disciple was, it wasn't Simon Peter. He was at least the second disciple. I mean, it was his brother who found him and said, come, I've, I've found the Messiah. And, you know, the point is being made because when Andrew is introduced in verse 40, Andrew, Simon's Peter's brother. <laughs> so we're thinking about Simon Peter. As the text is showing us about Simon Peter, but it's saying this, do you realize Simon Peter was introduced to the Lord Jesus Christ by his brother. He wasn't the first disciple, but maybe he's the first person by name who has been introduced to the truth by another disciple. So in what sense is he disciple number one? Because you notice when you look at the list of disciples and I just go to uh, Matthew chapter 10, verse two, though the names of the 12 apostles are these, the first Simon. It doesn't say the second Andrew. It just says the first Simon. He is always first in the list. Though that list varies from place to place, it always begins with Simon. He's disciple number one, but he wasn't the first disciple. In what sense is he number one? Well, if you come to First uh, Timothy chapter one verse. 4, 15. I think you'll see there an example of the use of this word first, which carries with it not just first in time or first in order, but first in the sense of the prototype. The Greek word is protos. Okay. So if you look in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15 and 16, well-known, famous words of the Apostle Paul, he says, this is a famous saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am first. Now, what did the apostle mean? Did he really say, did he really think he was the worst sinner there had ever been? I'd say, well, yes, in his own mind, he was. He'd done terrible things. He'd persecuted the ecclesia. He'd, he'd put people in prison. He had he had uh, helped to organize the, the death of Stephen. He really, he really felt that he was the chief sinner. I, I don't think, not, not to say he didn't feel that, but I don't think that's what these words are saying, because that word chief or first appears in the next verse when he says, how be it for this cause, I obtained mercy that in me first, Jesus Christ might show forth all long suffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to everlasting life. What the Apostle Paul is saying is the Lord Jesus Christ had taken Saul of Tarsus and made him a pattern of salvation. He was a representative man. He was a sinner who had been saved. He was a man to look at. You want to know what it is to turn around your life or your life to be turned around by the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to know how to go from sinner to saint, Look at the Apostle Paul. That's why the Apostle Paul can say, and he, he's not making this up himself, be followers of me, even as I am of Christ, because he has been set forth as a vessel to take Christ to the Gentiles. He was the prototype of a sinner who was saved. In the same way, I believe, that Simon Peter is put forward as a man who is the prototype disciple. And he had to be a very special character to be that, a larger-than-life character, a character who said what everybody else wanted to say, but didn't have the courage to say it. Somebody who 
would do what he felt straight away without probably thinking much about it. How grateful we are for people like that. People so straight, so honest, that you know where you are with them. They say what they think, even though that, you can't say that. <laughs> but it, it does seem to be that when we meet people like that, people, others don't take offense because they realize the sincerity of that person. Everybody feels comfortable. They know what that person thinks and feels. Uh, and that's, that's good. And, and some of you, I believe, was a character like that. Now, he's not presented in scripture in all the detail that we might make a judgment. It's not about us making a judgment about Simon Peter. We're not here to judge him. Uh, we're not here to, to, to condemn him. We're not here even to exonerate him. We're here to learn from him. He's presented to us as a figure in scripture, through scripture. And you get this word first. So we're going to spend mostly our time in Matthew in the first talk because Matthew has a special work to do in showing us Simon Peter as the prototype disciple. And it comes out again in chapter 17. And in chapter 17, Peter uh, is the one who's approached by the authorities asking whether the Lord Jesus Christ pays tribute money, temple tribute. And Simon Peter indignantly asserts that, of course, he pays temple tax. You know, we are uh, righteous people. Of course he does. What would you expect of, of, of Jesus of Nazareth? And what happens is that Jesus takes him aside in the house. Verse 25 says, and when he was coming to the house, in the authorized version, it says Jesus prevented him. In the ESV, it says spoke first, but it's not the word spoke or speak either. Right? It's not the Greek word for speaking. Um, I can tell you what it is, but I can't pronounce it. I can show you the word. But it means to get, uh, to get in early, <laughs> to preempt, to anticipate. And I think it was the situation was a bit like this, that the Lord Jesus knew that Peter was going to raise this subject as soon as he got it. <laughs> and he was going to say, well, what do you think, Lord? They were asking if you pay temple tax. And I told him straight, of course you pay temple tax. But before he could get that out, before, you know, Peter, I'm not sure I would use the word impetuous, but, uh, you know, he was certainly not a man who hesitated. Uh, before he could speak, the Lord got in first. <laughs> he preempted that that in intervention by Peter first. The word pro begins that Greek word. He got in first. And he says to Peter, of whom do the kings of the earth take customer tribute, of their own children or of strangers? In other words, Peter's eagerness to proclaim that the Lord Jesus Christ paid tax was not a very thoughtful thing to say if you realized who the Lord Jesus Christ was, and Peter did realize who he was. We just read that in chapter 16. He, he, he'd come to the conclusion who the Lord Jesus Christ was. He was the son of the living God. Does the son of the living God pay tax? It was his father's house. Did he pay tax? Peter, you, you just said who I was. Now, why were you so quick to say I pay tax? And he says, 
the children are free. They're free of that obligation, verse 27, notwithstanding, lest we should offend them. So again, the Lord didn't want to make a scene about it. He wasn't going to not pay tax on principle because, of course, this was a ministry to convince people who he was. He wasn't going to cause a storm and a teacup over something at that stage. But he says to Peter, go and cast your hook in the sea and take up the fish that first cometh up. And when thou hast opened his mouth, thou shalt find a piece of money that take and give unto them for me and thee. That's a beautiful thing. Simon Peter, if you look, it's a wonderful uh, King James Bible margin here, because they asked about the tribute money in verse 24. And the, the tribute money was, was a, a price, a piece of money, called in, in the original, I die drachma, being in value 15 pence. That's 15 old pence, right? But the coin that Peter fished up out of the fish's mouth, if you look in, in the margin, it's a stator, it is half an ounce of silver in value two shillings and sixpence. So the first coin was one and threepence. The second coin was two shillings and sixpence. In other words, that one coin was exactly the right money for Jesus and Peter. Now, what's the point? Our salvation, our redemption, this piece of silver, our redemption, that was levied on every male that was numbered in Israel. Remember, Exodus and Numbers. The redemption money, which went to find to, to the silver, was, was molten into the sockets that held the boards of the tabernacle. It was the, the very foundation, salvation, redemption, the very foundation of the house of God. That disciple was part of the same coin as the Lord Jesus Christ. You couldn't separate them. You can't have Peter's salvation and the Lord Jesus Christ's own redemption as two separate things. You can have them as one coin. I just think about discipleship in that regard, brothers and sisters. We are one face of a coin. The other side is the Lord Jesus Christ. Just think about that, carrying a coin. Oh, I do have one. Imagine that, any coin. One side is the Lord Jesus Christ, and you look at it, and the other side is us. Does it bear any resemblance? You know, the Lord died for us, rose again for us, that we might be part of his body. I think that Peter, the fisher of men, is that coin, the first fish. Peter, the first fish to be caught, wasn't it? Andrew, first findeth his brother and bringeth him to the Lord. Peter is not there as disciple number one, as the most important or the highest in status or anything like that. He's there as the man who represents us all in our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. What about his name change in John uh, chapter one? His name was called Cephas. So I'd like to get to that uh, in a moment, but let's, let's just go to Matthew and catch up, really. And go to Matthew chapter 4 and see the call of Simon Peter. 
And uh, I, I mentioned that Matthew has a particular emphasis on Simon Peter. I'll show you that in a moment, especially from chapter 14 to chapter 19, where every incident seems to circle around Peter, and he's mentioned by name. Some, some of these incidents are mentioned. The other gospel records are not always told who was the disciple who said it or asked it. But in Matthew, we are, because it's got this focus on Simon Peter as disciple number one. What we have in Matthew chapter 4, later after John chapter 1, the Lord goes back up to Galilee. Simon and Peter have gone ahead. They're fishing, or they've been fishing, and they're mending their nets. In verse 18, Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he said unto them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they straightway left their nets and followed him. So there's an incident, verses 18, 19, 20, two brothers in the fishing industry call to follow, and they leave their nets and follow him. The next incident are two other brothers in the fishing industry who are called and who leave more than their fishing. So verse 21 says, going on from thence, he saw other two brethren, James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, in a ship with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them, and they immediately left the ship and their father. So Simon Peter and his brother had left their nets. John and his brother left the ship and their father. And sometimes the contrast is made between the, the second two brothers making more of a sacrifice than the first two. I don't think that's what it's saying. Uh, I don't think there's a comparison here between the two. It's just being built up. What does it mean to follow the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, if you didn't have a net, of course, there's no point having a ship, was there? Uh, and there's no business for your father to run. So if you leave your nets, you've left everything else as well. Right? But it's not just leaving your nets and going back to them. Discipleship is, you know, take us through discipleship. Well, Jesus calls you. And, you, and he says, come and follow me, and you leave what you're doing, and you follow him. That's discipleship. Well, what does that mean, leave what you're doing? Well, let's look at it again, right? Here you are, occupied in your business. Jesus comes. He calls you. He says, follow me, and you leave everything behind. And that's what Simon Peter did. You can see it in chapter uh, chapter 19 and verse 27, where the Lord is talking about uh, a rich man and how hard it is to enter into the kingdom. And, you know, we say, of course, it's the love of riches and it's trusting in riches. And the Lord says how hard it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Yeah? Because it's horrible to say, I'm rich, but I don't love them. <laughs> and you don't really know until you're challenged to lose them. You know, that's the truth of it, isn't it? You know, you know. So Peter says in verse 27, then answered Peter and said unto him, behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? We have forsaken all. And I think he did forsake everything. Oh, they had access to a boat three, three years later, didn't they? So maybe he hadn't sold the boat, but he'd left it. He, he was now committed to follow the Lord Jesus Christ wherever that took him. He didn't leave his wife. He still had a wife. Uh, at least when the Apostle Paul writes about him, he says, 
Apostle Paul says, well, I could lead about a wife as does Cephas. So he did have a family, probably, and he did have a wife, and she went with him on the journey. So leaving all isn't, you know, to be treated of in a sort of uh, superficial concept uh, of, uh, of just disappearing. It's about, you know, our direction in life, isn't it, and our priorities in life and where our heart in life is. And, you know, I do think, brothers and sisters, you know, I don't know, I'm fourth or fifth generation Christadelphian, and uh, you know, my granddaughters are seventh generation Christadelphians. And I do think it's a real trouble for young people to know what this call is in the sense of leaving something and following the Lord Jesus Christ. It's difficult, it's not their fault, it's just difficult to conceive of that because, uh, you know, as being brought up in the ecclesia, then, then it's a different sort of world, isn't it? But how uh, refreshing it is when we have something to do with our brothers and sisters from other countries who've, who've come here for refuge and who have left all behind. Uh, we know of a, a young brother who's doing very well in that country and who had everything, he said, but he had nothing. And he's come here and he's got nothing, but he's found everything. Now, there are people that we will meet, you know, week by week, who know exactly what it is to make that sacrifice. And it's a very humbling thing, isn't it? A very humbling thing. Now, Steve, you know, those in, in Africa who are in this situation, you know, people who are persecuted, we know, we've heard the news of our brothers and sisters in South Asia, some of whom have, uh, have sadly had their lives taken from them for the sake of the truth, for the Lord Jesus Christ, because they are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ and others and family who fled the country. You know, this is real, Francis. This is the matter of life and death. We're not talking about the medieval ages. We're talking about 2021. Where disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, Christadelphians, are in that situation. And I, and I feel often thoroughly ashamed. Just thoroughly ashamed of, of what is important and, and you know, what we fuss about. What, we, what we're anxious about, what we care about, too much. And I wonder what Simon Peter would say if we invited him home. I said, so, you know, how, who brought you to Jesus? It was my brother Andrew, he brought me. Oh, when he came up to Galilee and he said, follow me, and I just left it and I followed him. What, what, what was it like for you? And sometimes uh, we're not able to answer that because we don't know what it was like. Because it didn't happen to us. Except perhaps ever so gradually it dawned on us what it was to follow Jesus. And when a young person leaves the Christadelphians, as several are doing so, It's one thing to say, I'm leaving an organization. I'm leaving, uh, you know, a, a, a bureaucracy. <laughs> I'm, I'm leaving. 
What are we doing? Leaving the Lord Jesus Christ, because that's what it is, isn't it? It's not about an organization, a building. It's about being followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a personal matter. And that's something that we probably need to work on. I'm talking about myself firstly, to work on, to know what it is to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, let's go to chapter eight, because I say Simon Peter left everything, but he still had a house. Right? So he still had a house. So uh, when the time would come for him to sell his house, I'm sure he would have done so and did so and pooled the money with those in Jerusalem and distributed it to those who needed it. Might the time come when we have to do that, brothers and sisters? Might it? I don't see why. We could be sure it won't. And then we'd be challenged, wouldn't we? But in Matthew chapter 8, the Lord uh, goes into Peter's house. Now, we're told, we're told in Mark chapter 1 that the Lord had gone into the synagogue and he'd healed a man there with an unclean spirit. And straight away, he left the synagogue and went into Simon Peter's house. Now, if you go to Capernaum... <laughs> You'll see there the synagogue standing on the foundations of the Lord's synagogue. And you'll see as you just turn uh, to look towards the Sea of Galilee, you see a huge church standing on stilts over a fisherman's house, which is traditionally the house of Simon Peter. They found fishing gear in there from the first century times. And it's as far as you can go back in history, it's been revered as Simon Peter's house. It probably is Simon Peter's house. Mark chapter 1 says that the Lord Jesus Christ went out of the synagogue and immediately entered into Simon Peter's house. So it was right next to the synagogue. And that was the change that had to happen. What the, the records are telling us is that the Lord Jesus couldn't find a place in the synagogue. There was an unclean spirit there. The, the truth could not be nurtured in the synagogue. The brethren and sisters had to come out of the synagogue and meet together in Simon Peter's house. A house built upon a foundation that Jesus Christ is the son of the living God. That's Simon Peter's house. Upon this rock I will build my ecclesia. And Simon Peter's house was the first ecclesia. Disciple number one. What he did was open his house to his brothers and sisters and innumerable friends who crowded in. So they to take the roof off the house to lower a poor man down at the feet of Jesus to be healed. He's asking us, what, what do we do with our resources? You know, are, are we willing to open our resources for the benefit of our brothers and sisters? I mean, the greatest resource we have in this country is time. Huge amounts of time, don't we? So, you know, the question then is what we do with that? And there the Lord finds that Peter's mother-in-law is sick of a fever. She's sick of a fever and he touches her by the hand uh, and the fever left her. He touches her by the hand. And Mark says he lifted her hand. And do you know what Simon Peter's mother-in-law did? She arose and ministered unto them. And so what an amazing thing that Simon Peter's mother-in-law, 
was the most wonderful example, this older sister of service. No recuperation, no convalescence. You know, it's, it's just beautiful. If you, it's one of my favourite places on earth. If you go outside uh, Simon Peter's house to the edge, where, where you can still see um, the edge of the harbour, you can see the harbour walls under the water, right? And you sit there, and all you can see in front of you is the Sea of Galilee. And it, it is just a beautiful place. You think, okay, I'm recovering from a fever. You know, I'm exhausted. I'm drained. The Lord's touched me. I need to go think about this. And that's where I'd go. I'd go and sit outside, ignore the church, ignore the convent or whatever it is. Just go sit on the, on the rocks, looking out of the Sea of Galilee. No, Simon, where is she? No, no, she's, she, she's put the kettle on. She's got out of bed. She's making them food. She's got the water to wash their feet. So Simon Peter lived with a wonderful example of discipleship. It's a, it's a stunning thing to think about. You know, there'd be no, oh, I'm Simon Peter. <laughs> there'd be, oh, yes, mum. Uh, thank you very much. Now let me help. <laughs> no, no, you've got other things to do. You go find out what he's saying. Tell me afterwards. <laughs> I imagine it's something like that. I want to take you back to Isaiah chapter 50 and 51, because I want to suggest that Peter's mother-in-law is in scripture, not there as color uh, or, or an incidental uh, unnamed person, but there to represent the purpose of God in a very special way. And hopefully I'll come back to this in the second talk, but um, look, There is a, uh, a point I want to make now, which is sort of a general point, that the gospel record of Matthew is very closely linked to the prophecy of Isaiah. I know Mark and Luke and John, they all reference Isaiah, but Matthew in particular, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, occurs time and time again in Matthew. Matthew has taken us back to the great prophet Isaiah. The Lord Jesus was born of a virgin. The Lord Jesus preached in... Um, in, in Galilee, those, those two uh, passages, Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9, are where the gospel record starts in Matthew. Now, a virgin shall conceive. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. The gospel record, I say, go back and have a look at Isaiah. Go back and have a look at it. In chapter 8, between those two great quotations, it's a passage which will if you go through Matthew, you'll, you'll see echoes coming through again. But this is in particular what I want to draw attention to. Verse 16. Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples. And I will wait upon the Lord that hideth his face from the house of Jacob, and I will look for him. And that, when you look carefully at it, is a prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ and the 12, and other disciples that would follow. You see that word disciples, it's, it's, uh, it's a rare word in the Old Testament. It's, I think it's the only time uh, it's used in English as disciples, but it's exact equivalent of the New Testament disciples. So what does disciple mean? Now, I was brought up thinking disciple meant follower, to follow, but it doesn't. 
That's what disciples do, but it's not what the word disciple means. The word disciple is the word learner. The learned, the people who are learning or have learned. Right? And so that's what we have to bind the law amongst my learned ones, those who are learners, who are learning. And that's why I think uh, Matthew is, is drawing upon this emphasis. And what happens in Isaiah chapter 50? Well, first of all, we've got a prophecy of Simon Peter in Isaiah chapter 50. It's an immense prophecy. It's a startling thing. I will, I will convince you, if you haven't seen this before, you say, hmm, I'm not so sure how that could be. Uh, if you have heard it before, you say, oh, of course it is. <laughs> So Isaiah chapter 50 and verse, uh, verse 5, the Lord God hath opened mine ear, and I was not rebellious, neither turned away back. That's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? Huh? The Lord, first of all, is the learned one in verse 4. He is the one who has learned his father's will and who is doing it. And then in verse 6, it says, I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. And we know that that's a prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nobody's going to doubt that, are they? All right? But Simon Peter was there when that was happening. He was in earshot. He was in eyesight. And then, look what happens. The voice of the Lord in the spirit of prophecy he says in verse 8, he is near that justifieth me, who will contend with me? Let us stand together, who is mine adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God will help me. Who is he that shall condemn me? No, they all shall wax old as a garment. The moth shall eat them up. That was the secret of the Lord's silence. That's why he didn't say anything, because he was trusting. Who is going to condemn me? God is on my side. No matter what you say, I don't need to argue with you. I trust in my father. But now verse 10, it's the voice of the Lord Jesus, the spirit of prophecy turns not to his accusers, but to the crowd of people who are watching. And he asks about one person in particular. Who is among you that feareth the Lord, that obeyeth the voice of his servant, and walketh in darkness. And walketh in dark. Who is in that crowd? This is your hour, says the Lord, and the power of darkness. Who is there? Who is an obedient servant who fears Yahweh? But who is in the wrong place? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and stay upon his God. It's an appeal to Simon Peter. Do you know when Peter looked back, he must have been shaken to his roots, don't you think? When he realized that there was a verse in the Bible, in Isaiah's prophecy, about him, that he was now in the corner of a dark room, Sitting by a fire made of the firebrands that have been used to light the way to Gethsemane and back, that verse 11 speaks of, that he shouldn't be there because he was intimidated into keeping silence, that he never knew who Jesus was. He never even met him. 
and so it says in verse 11 this shall he have on my hand he shall lie down in sorrow and that's what he did he bent out and he wept bitterly and this disciple disciple number one takes us into the twilight area of the sisters of the situation where we are too frightened to identify ourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. We're too scared to say where our allegiance lies. And no matter how Peter felt, well, you might know how Peter felt. Not on such a dramatic scale, but every time we feel the need to say nothing when we should speak up. But look then at chapter 51, verse 1. If you agree with me, or at least you're sympathising a little bit, that this is a specific prophecy of, of Peter. What else could it be? There was no one else in Scripture that fulfils this in such remarkable detail. Hearken to me, that's Simeon's name, hearken to me, ye that follow after righteousness, ye that seek Yahweh, look unto the rock from whence ye are hewn, and to the hole of the pit whence ye are digged. Now there is Peter's name church in that verse. Simeon, Simon, thou shalt be called Cephas, which by interpretation is Petros. But Jesus didn't call him Petros. He didn't. That's what he was known in the Greek language. But in the Hebrew language, he was called Cephas. And Cephas is not the ordinary word for rock in Hebrew. The two words for rock, I think, of that the, the uh, Sila is, is one, and uh, what's the other one? Su is the other one, right? But this word is related to the, the hand, Cephas. And it's the word rarely used in the Old Testament, which describes a cave or an alcove cut out of a rock. You know, it's the space. It's the stone that's been cut out. Look unto the rock from whence we are hewn. And I think, my sisters, that is a remarkable thing. So what Peter is being asked to think about himself is to look at that rock face or the quarry from which he has been carved. It's not saying, look at yourself, Peter, you're a rocky character. You know, you're immovable. You've got the strength of a rock. He's not saying that to him. St. Peter, look where you've been carved from. Go back to the quarry. And what is that quarry? Verse 2. Look unto Abraham your father and unto Sarah that bear you. You've got to go back to your foundations. You've got to go back to the roots of, of the promises of God. I, identify yourselves with the foundation doctrines of the truth. Don't move away from them. That's where you've come from. There is no other foundation that anyone can lay 
There's no social gospel or any other doctrine that will save us. There is only the truth as God has revealed it through the promises to the fathers and fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what Peter's been asked to go back to. And look at his mother, just sorry, I'm going to just uh, skip to this now. If you go to chapter 51, you see, you've got this appeal to the nation to hearken, to hearken, to hearken, and to listen. And then it says in verse 9, awake, awake. And in verse 17 it says, awake, awake. And in chapter 52, verse 1, it says, awake, awake. So there's three sets of waking up. Wake up to God's purpose. Wake up to the salvation that God has accomplished. It goes back to delivering Israel out of Egypt. Right? The, the greatest power was on display. Go back and wake up to the fact that we believe in the creator of heaven and earth. Then verse 17, awake up, Jerusalem. You have suffered at the hands of of, of the enemy because of your lack of faith. But now wake up because God's purpose with Israel is assured. The hope of Israel is our hope. And in chapter 52 says, wake up, Zion. Put on your wedding garments. The marriage of the Lamb has come. And it's in that setting, in chapter 51, verse Verse 18, speaking of Jerusalem, the future bride, there is none to guide her of all the sons whom she hath brought forth. Neither is there any that taketh her by the hand of all the sons that she hath brought up. There was nobody to take this lady by the hand and raise her up. And the Lord Jesus goes into Simon Peter's house. Simon Peter's house. The man whose prophecy is there. The man whose name change comes after it. He takes her by the hand. She's represented Jerusalem of the age to come. And Peter would, would understand that eventually as he followed the master, growing in understanding, as he began to learn the things of, the deeper things of the faith. So I stop there. We have, have a break with sisters and I just... Uh, Reorganize my thoughts as to what to say next. <laughs> I think we've wandered off peace here. <laughs> but uh, it's a wonderful thing, isn't it? You know, to think of Simon Peter as a real person, not as distant from us, but someone we feel ever so comfortable. We rode up to his house. Uh, and I don't know what his mother in law's name was. We call her Aunt Jerusha. <laughs> I said, Come in, sit down. What can I get you? Uh, and what a conversation we'd had with the lady of the house that hosted the Lord Jesus Christ throughout his gallery and ministry. What a story that would be.